Good morning. Today's reading is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. That can be found on page 991 in your pew Bibles. Pray for all people. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of the Lord, of the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Lord, please help us know you and trust you. Help us look toward you before anything else. Help us live lives that are glorifying to you. Lord, please help our leaders make decisions that are pleasing to you. And please help Cody teach your word and help shepherd us toward a closer relationship with you. Amen. In June and July of 1939, the invasion of Nazi Germany was on the very shores of England. And so the Ministry of Information of England decided to help with the impending needed morale to produce a series of three posters to strengthen that potentially needed morale if Nazi Germany was going to invade, which we now know they did. Two of the posters were used. The third was ultimately put into storage and even destroyed. The first poster read... Freedom is in peril. Defend it with all your might. The second poster read, Your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. And the third was all but forgotten and thought to have been destroyed for 70 years. Until 2010. In 2010, a gentleman owning a small bookshop in a small town in northern England bought a box of used books and upon rubbaging through them, found a poster that read, Keep Calm and Carry On. Now you've probably been in HEB in the last year and seen that phrase all over the place. It's now been commercialized because this couple took that poster framed it, put it on their shop wall, and the entrance in this little tiny town grew to such an extent that it led to the mass commercialization of that phrase that we see everywhere. But I want you to notice the emphasis of each one of these slogans. Freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. Your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. Keep calm and carry on. The emphasis of all three of these is on you. You get it right. You think calm thoughts. And I'm not sure what else you would say 
to a people as they watched bombs drop from the sky, as they watched bodies be ravaged, as they watched homes go away. What else do you say? I'm not sure. And maybe seeing a poster as you're walking through a bomb-ridden place that says, keep calm and carry on, would sort of pick up my morale. But probably and just until the next bomb I saw drop, and then I need to see that same poster yet again. And what would the Apostle Paul tell us this morning? Now, if you were with us last week, and I'm going to presume that we have forgotten a little bit of what was last week, so look in 1 Timothy 1. 18 through 20. Paul last week was describing the good warfare that Timothy was to engage in. That Timothy was to wage. He was to fight the good fight of faith. And Paul was well aware of the chaos of the like of war. He describes to Timothy the the horror of a faith shipwrecked. A shipwreck that he had been personally a part of. In the sense physically having been a part of the horror of a shipwreck. And the Christian West, the Christian church of the West, would probably in today's time be a great discouragement to Paul if he was here. It probably wouldn't be very recognizable to him. The Church of America is not inoculated from our culture. A culture that says self-help is the right way. Self-confidence is the right way. Just be calm. You can do it. Feelings and impressions as the basis for truth rather than logic and reality as God sees it. And I fear that most church pulpits this morning around this country will feed the sheep of God with little more than keep calm and carry on. All of the focus is upon us. Nothing about Christ, nothing about the atonement, nothing about our sin, nothing about the glory of God, nothing about his holiness, nothing about his perfection, his righteousness. Nothing but hope in ourselves. Why is that? Well, because I think we believe the same thing that England believed in 1939, that the power to deal with this life lies within us. That if we can just tweak and tune the human will just right then we can get through whatever difficulties that life might throw our way. And we would think wrongly about that. We aren't as strong as we think we are. We are actually weak. We think ourselves to be capable, and we are not. The Apostle Paul tells us what to do. He doesn't say, look to yourself first. In fact, I think it's interesting that he doesn't say, Paul, here, uh, Timothy, here's the glory of the gospel, which he just described at the end of verse Timothy 1. He didn't say, now the first thing is, be joyful. Or, or be peaceful. Or be confident. No, not at all. He says, Timothy, wage the good warfare. Timothy, fight the good t- t- fight. Timothy, stop. First, pray. First pray. That's Paul's instruction to Timothy. And it would be his instruction to us as well. If Timothy were alive today, his first response uh, as the typical American would be, yeah, 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 Paul, I got it. But what do I do? And Paul's answer would be, you first pray. We find ourselves this morning in the first two verses of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. Paul has concluded his introduction And articulated his thesis for the book. 
And here in chapter 2, he really begins to get to the meat of his letter to, letter to the church that Timothy is pastoring. He's just spent some time articulating the glory of the gospel, end of chapter 1. And it could be said that the word is arguing for us to consider this morning that the first thing, the first thing, a person of saving faith, a person that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, should do is to pray all types of prayers for all types of people. Look with me at verse 1, point number 1. The point is derived from the text. The first point is first pray. And we're going to spend 75% of our time this morning on this first point. First pray. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now we could be tempted to say, okay, what is supplication prayer? And what is prayer? How does that differ from supplication and intercession? Thanksgiving. I think Paul is simply trying to say by way of using a lot of different words to describe the same thing. We should pray all types of prayer. We typically intercede for one another. But we should also thank God for one another. As by way of example. And it's for all types of people. Notice he doesn't say pray for just the ones that are nice, not the naughty ones. In context, who is he actually including in the all people? We'll look over at verse 20 of chapter 1. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. Men who have blasphemed the word of God to such an extent that Paul has declared them to be unbelievers, false teachers, wolves and sheep's clothing. That's who is included in all people that Paul says to pray for. So we're to pray for one another, certainly. We're to pray for our unbelieving neighbors, certainly. But we're to also pray for those who are in opposition against us. We're also to pray for, for our enemies. We're to pray for all people. Now, then the question might be, well, Pastor, I don't know everybody. So I don't know how to pray for all people. Well, you know enough people. So pray for all the people that you know. And all the people that you know about. And that's one of the reasons why in our prayer of confession and petition, the longer pastoral prayer in our service, we pray for different countries around the world. Because we want to pray for, as Paul says, all people. And so we do. And we thank God for all people. Now, I don't know about you, but my prayer time doesn't typically uh, start and end with, God, I thank you for this person, this person, this person. I thank you for what they're doing. I thank you for their, how they're helping me. I thank you for that person who's not helping me and actually advancing their cause against me. We don't think that way. But we should be thanking God for one another. We typically only thank people for stuff that we get that we really like. But what about that person who's a believer in Jesus Christ, sitting somewhere maybe in this room, sitting in another church maybe, that may not be just like you, but holds to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you thank God for him? And do you? Let us be those who are praying for everyone. We should be those who are praying consistently for many people, not just the same people. So there's some practicality here. Some people in this room I know have a, have a book, literally, 
that has just pages of people that they are regularly praying for. That works for them. I have something on my iPhone. Maybe you have a list tacked to your bathroom wall. Whatever it might be, find ways to pray consistently for many types of people. It's easy for us to just get in the habit of praying for those one or two people we always pray for. Grandma and grandpa. Or the person that's sick. But let's pray for many types of people. And especially here, he gives us two examples of people that we should pray for. Notice he says, pray especially for kings and those in authority. First of all, I'm just going to request that you pray for me. As your pastor, as one in authority, pray for me. Please. Paul commands it here. Pray for those in authority. And then he says, pray, certainly pray for kings. One of the questions might be, why kings? Why does, why does Paul pluck kings and all who are in high positions as examples? Why didn't he say, and pray for the poor widow down the street? Or pray for the person who is struggling with their income? Or pray for this person who's struggling with this particular sin? Or pray for your wife? Why did he pluck kings and all who are in high positions? I'm not sure. I can make and will a bit of conjecture, and I think that's simply because we don't think to pray for these type of people because they aren't like or one of us. I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking President of the United States, I'm thinking someone who is of a completely different world than I am. He runs in a different circle, he does other things, he has more power, and he doesn't know me. He doesn't even know I exist. And yet, we need to be thinking about praying for all types of people. And specifically, praying for authorities because authorities, whether we they know us or not, have influence upon our lives. Now, they're under the complete and sovereign control of God. He's the one who has brought them up to their position, according to Daniel 2. He's the one who takes them from their position, if needed. But they do have a lot of influence in our lives. And are we praying for them? And we'll see why we should be praying for them in just a moment. Ezra 6, verse 10. No need to turn there. But Darius, King Darius, decrees, part of his decree, in allowing Ezra to rebuild the temple wall in Ezra 6, 10, it says this. Verse 10. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul really begins to articulate What gospel living looks like. If you're shaped by the gospel, then what that, how that living is going to, what that living is going to look like. And part of the fruit of gospel living is carrying about and submitting and honoring the authorities God has placed over us to the extent that we pray for them. And I'm not sure, but I think that might be unique to Christianity. I don't know too many other religions I couldn't think of any in that preparation that are going to pray for authorities, kings. And yet we model our submission to Christ by caring for those we're to submit to on this earth, such as those in authority. And that modeling can look like prayer. Paul sets us a wonderful example of praying for others. I just quickly breeze through some of the writings of Paul. 
And if you just take at least eight, and there's more out of the many books he's written, at least eight of the books he's written in the first chapter or close to the last chapter, Paul expresses that his testimony of praying for those whom he's writing to. He sets a good example for praying for those he's writing to, for the churches he's writing. And here he's admonishing Timothy, do what I'm doing. Prayer, praying for others. Imagine, if you will, your eyes opening on an early morning. And when your eyes open, you're immediately blinded. And what blinds you is two things. One, the severe cold that you find yourself in. And two, dust. You find yourself having woken up on the street somewhere. Lying on a piece of cardboard. A dust, a street sweeper having gone by and kicked dust into your eyes. You're bitterly cold. You haven't had no food. You have no place to go. You look around and there's other people on the street doing the same thing as you are. And you, you say to a person next to you, I wish we could get help from someone. And that person looks at you and says, But we can. You can get us some help. And you then respond to that person. What do you mean? How can I How can I get help for us? We're in the street. We have nothing. I don't know anybody other than you people. And we're all cold and destitute and tired. And he says, but you have access to the king. I have access to the king. Yeah, yeah. You can just march up to the palace. Walk in and he will see you immediately. No way. Yes, you do. I think one of the reasons why Paul models the example of prayer to others is he is is convinced of his place before the throne of God that was bought and purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It, it, It seems to us that we oftentimes forget that the first thing one who has direct access to the king should do is to go before the king. We so quickly forget that. Christ lives even now to make intercession for us. We can go before the throne room of God at any time, at any place, and walk in immediately because of the one who has preceded us and paid for our ability to walk in. We can think of the the great hymn of the faith. Before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea, the great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So, because we have a great high priest, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Romans 8.34 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The blood of Jesus Christ continually intercedes before that throne saying, That blood is for him. And we have an audience before the king. But we don't first go, do we? And it seems 
strange to us to hear a story about a guy on a street who needs help and he has direct access. He can just get up and walk into the palace. And you would think, why not? A denial to pray, a denial even for us today is an is is ignoramus, is a fool's response to one's position. Paul has just told us in verse 17, to the king of ages, that is your king, to the king of ages be glory forever. We have a king, that king, immortal, invisible, and yet we so often refuse to walk in and plead that throne. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul now, tells the story of a friend of his coming over from England in the 60s who upon touring the East Coast, walking into different shops and seeing different flags that represented the the Revolutionary War of America, the War of Independence, saw signs of don't tread on me and no taxation without representation. And then he saw a sign that shocked him, not a sign, a flag, and the flag read this, we serve no sovereign here. And he remarked to R.C. the fact that how can one submit to the glory of Jesus Christ and of God who is sovereign all over thing, over all things if they have no understanding of, of sovereignty and they continually refuse it. So my question this morning is we fight that rebellion against the sovereignty of God and therefore we don't want to go before him and plead the, the throne. But is Jesus Christ your king? Have you submitted to his rule and reign in your life? And it is the best rule and reign. Because not only does he take you from the the sin and muck and mire and his wrath upon you in your sin. And bring you from a pauper to a prince. And give you an inheritance of the glory of eternal life forever before his throne. Not only does he do that. He does it with great love and affection. So is, have you submitted your life to Christ? Will you repent of your rebellion against him and submit to him? And you get the father of fathers and you get the access to the throne and so much more. But even then, even, even so much more than that, you're saved from your sin that demands the wrath and punishment of God. Is our, is, is prayer our first response? Do we first pray? Of course not. Not at all. Daily, do we recognize that we are in a war? Paul's just told Timothy that. You're in a good war. Do we recognize that? And will we pray? And of course not. We are proud fools. And we must daily be those who are repenting of our own self-reliance and praying. How do we know that we should continue to pray? By recognizing the glory of the gospel that has assured us of our ability to gain a hearing with the King of Kings. Martin Luther's life, his prayer life, was legendary. Uh, He was supposed to have authored the famous statement, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. He modeled this, first of all, we should pray. And so the question then is, how should we pray? And I think we should just take a few moments Uh, not getting too far away from the passage, to flip over to Matthew 6. This is a passage probably everybody would know in some sense of the word because of the Lord's Prayer. If you just turn there with me, Matthew 6, 5 through 13, I wanted to just give you three very simple things, very simple things you can apply today, tomorrow, that would help us as we desire to first pray. Matthew 6, 5 through 13, I won't read all of this, 
But let me just begin with the first couple of verses there. And when you pray, you must be like the hypocrites. We're in verse 5 of Matthew 6. For they love, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray, Lynn, like this. And he gives us the Lord prayer. Anyone can do this. This is uh, praying is not based upon your age, little child to elder saint. It doesn't matter if you're a new believer or a mature one. You are able to do this. A couple things here. First of all, in contrast to Paul, Paul says pray without ceasing. So we should be living a life of prayer. But here in Matthew 6, we're being told of specific times of prayer. So the first thing we can gain out of this passage, very simply, is find a good place to pray. Find a good place to pray. And, and, And preferably, find a place that's alone. I don't know what works for you. But but know yourself well enough to find a good place. For me, it's walking. Walking down the church road, up and down, is when I can do my best praying. When I can be the most concentrated and focused on what I'm doing. Early morning on Main Street, walking up and down Main Street and praying for the city. That's when I can do some of my best focused praying. I'm alone, I'm moving, and I'm not distracted. Whatever works for you, find a good place, a place alone to pray. Next of all, find a time. Find a good time where you can focus. Early mornings at 5 a.m. may not be your thing. It is not mine. Late nights at 10 a.m., 10 p.m. may not be your thing. It's not mine. But find a good time for you. When's the good time for you to be able to maintain a focus and not be just mumbling words, but really praying and praying sincerely? And thirdly, Find a place alone, find a time, and keep it simple. This does not have to be um, wordy. It doesn't have to be incredible. It needs to be simple. Notice the Lord's Prayer. Nothing earth-shattering here. And even using the Lord's Prayer, if you've not had these types of prayer before, is a great example. Our Father in Heaven, and you can just begin articulating all that. Father, I thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you're in Heaven, I'm on Earth, you're ruling, you're reigning, you're my Father, it's my Father. And just letting the, the Lord's Prayer launch your continued prayers to Him. And we know that we know that we have the Holy Spirit who helps us in our prayer. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Go before the throne and pray. And you won't get it right, but that's because you're not perfect. And yet God has provided a helper, the Holy Spirit, that will help you with that. But let's first pray. Point one, first praise. Point number two, which is the second part of verse two, if you're back in First Timothy now, is then live. First pray, then live. Why should we pray? Answer. That our lives may be different. Notice it says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Prayer fuels gospel living. Prayer fuels gospel living. Our desire 
brothers and sisters, should be to be an accurate living testimony of an eternal reality. That eternal eternal reality is that we have peace with God through Christ. So I can guarantee not much about your life, except for one thing. Nobody's life in here is perfectly, perfectly peaceful. Everyone in here has some chaos in some way, shape, or form. Has some relationship that is difficult. Has some burden that is unable to be overcome right now. Has some stress that is mounting. And yet there is an eternal reality that supersedes all of that. And that is you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we pray in order that in that chaos, we might manifest that eternal reality to the world. The world might say, that person just lost their grandmother. Why are they not freaking out? That person cannot make ends meet and they cannot uh, pay their bills. Why are they not freaking out? Because of an eternal reality that is peace with God through Christ. That is why we pray. Because we are weak. That is not our first inclination to manifest that peace and that dignity and that quiet life and that reverence. And yet it is something we should strive for and prayer is that which produces, helps produce that change needed. Psalm 43, I would encourage you to take your Bibles this afternoon and turn to Psalm 43. David is praying and David's prayer is not just asking for things, but he's having a conversation with God in many ways. And one of the things he's doing is he's articulating things that are not true. And in that prayer, he is calling his heart and mind to a recognition of the truth, according to God, that brings peace to his soul in the midst of the storm. And so he concludes Psalm 43 with, why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him who is my God. That is what prayer should do for us. Is we should be able to go before God, first pray, and as we're praying, having our minds renewed with the truth of what he promises. So that in the midst of the storms and chaos and, and, and warfare of this life, we do have peace. And we are able to live a quiet life, godly, dignified in every way, even if that which around us does not seem that way. Why should we first pray? In order that we may live a tranquil, honest life. In order that our lives would be God-glorifying, even when things are not so peaceful. In context here, Paul admonishing Timothy to confront false teachers. And notice, false teaching does not produce godly, quiet, peaceful, dignified living. False teaching produces false living. False teaching produces chaos in someone's life. False teaching produces fear, anxiety. And gospel living produces something completely different. Sound doctrine is that which displays God's glory as central in all things. And therefore, gospel living is the good fruit, is the uncommon fruit, is the different from the world fruit that springs from and commends and gives valid testimony to the Christ who has changed us. So what is keeping you from that type of prayer this week? Wrong priorities? Is it is it wrong thinking? Do you need to go back to the gospel, which we should be doing every day and reminding ourselves we can go before that throne? Maybe you're thinking, nope, my sin keeps me from that throne. 
then look to Christ who says, come. What's going to change your prayer life from 2017 to 2018? We have immense prayer warriors amongst us. And nobody in this room would say, my prayer life is what I want it to be. Everybody would say, I want it to grow and be more. So what's going to change for you in 2018? The gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners and gives them hope and life is of such wonder and beauty. That is why we should want to communicate that message as clearly as possible to the world around us. And prayer is that which primes that engine of communication. Prayer is the advance work and preparation for gospel work. Gospel fruit in the lives of the people of Fredericksburg and our lives this week and this coming week, this next year that is around the corner is such an eternal weight of glory that God has provided the means by which we prepare our hearts and minds for that war for souls. And that means is prayer. The fruit of gospel living and change springs from and is prepared by prayer. This is not a work of drudgery. This is a work of opportunity and delight. And I hope and pray and trust that we might be encouraged even this week and this coming year to be those who are consistently and constantly on bended knee before that throne, pleading for one another, pleading for those we do not know, pleading for unreached people groups, pleading for the the business owners and the unsaved in Fredericksburg, those that need to be reached with the gospel and trusting that then God will use those prayers to prepare the work that he may have us do even down the road. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice to know that we have access before the throne. Forgive us for how so little we access that throne. May we be those, Father, this week who first pray because we recognize The power of God. The power of you, our Father. To affect the lives of kings and people in authority. The king's heart, Proverbs tells us, is in the hand of the Lord and he guides it as the watercourse. And Father, we trust that you will you will help us and that you will even guide authorities that our lives might be more free, might have greater freedom to be able to live in ways that declare the wonder and beauty of Christ. Father, may we stand for truth and even in the midst of chaos as truth clashes with falsehood that around us, may we manifest peace and hope and joy and dignity and how we work out our gospel living in such a way that declares that we've had We've been made right with God. We've been given peace. A peace that passes all understanding. We thank you, Father, for this morning and the opportunity to declare the good news. To remind ourselves to minister to one another of the work of Christ for us. As we conclude now, as we close in song, we pray that you would strengthen us for this week. To you alone be glory. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.